Hello and welcome to This Guy Edits, the podcast. My name is Sven. I did it. I said it. I introduced myself. And with me is Tyler. Tyler, how are you? Hey, Sven. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. What was that frustrated breath right before you started? I, I, I didn't want to introduce myself. I gotta be honest. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, okay. Well, that'll be our thing is you don't introduce yourself ever again. So, so hey, Sven. This is the This Guy Edits podcast. Playing on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can find us. This is the show where we look at clips from popular films or forgotten about films and analyze the editing, the final stage of the process, give you a little something to look forward to with your own work, getting to that point, having people look at it and relish the glory of the work that you are doing like we are with most of these scenes. Yes, and I'm really excited about this episode because we're actually taking a user request and we're looking at a film because a user left a comment and said, look at the film. Clara. So, Claret, now, Sven, I want to actually ask you, you had something you want to talk about, but did you go down and uh, record the episode with the searching editors? I did go down there. Um, that was two days ago, and it was great. I really loved meeting the two guys, Will and Nick. It's a little frustrating to see that they're basically fresh out of high school, and the first real project they're working <laughs> on is a hit film in theaters. But uh, they're cool guys, and... They really, it's amazing to see them already talk about editing and the stuff that they've discovered and now really uh, shows you the future is bright for filmmaking. So they didn't go to college anywhere. They didn't do the ACE internship, like three people a year do. They just jumped right into editing a feature. I know it's a low budget feature, but how does one make that, that leap? Well, they all, it's a gang of, I think, a couple of people, the director, Anish, and then Will and Nick, and I think there was two more people involved, and they all went to USC. And Anish okay. got a job. Up. That's not a high school. Oh, did I say high school? <laughs> I'm sorry. Fresh out of film school. <laughs> so you're saying they came out of USC and there was a group of them? Exactly. And Anish worked for Google or YouTube for a couple of years, did a lot of YouTube videos, and is super savvy when it comes to screen recordings social media all that stuff and pitched the idea to everybody at the beginning nobody was really very enthusiastic about the film but he was very insistent and passionate and slowly but surely was able to get everybody on board and was also able to convince john chow to star in the movie and then it took a year of editing to put this all together submit to sundance got into sundance sold the movie for $5 million to Sony, won the audience award. And then it took almost another year to just do eight different versions of the film. Because there's so many screen recordings and text in there, they had to just make sure that every country that they're releasing it to has, has a version available, a fully new rendered version of the film. That's amazing. And that kind of is cool because it's building on a lot of the stuff you talk about with editing, with mixed formats of nonfiction reality and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I don't, to me, that doesn't, that just sounds like not a, I, I think it'd be frustrating and crazy if they graduated high school or graduated film school and got thrown into a studio film. But this sounds like a not <clears throat> uncommon case of, you know, people making a completely independent film that they submitted to Sundance. And now they're off and running and doing more of those. And, I think that's one of the few roads into 
editing studio features, which I know is something you never wanted to do starting out, and you were working for James Cameron in the same time frame that they uh, that they started doing this. But you know, like my um, like the editor Zine Baker, who's coming to speak to my class in a few weeks. He edited Thor Ragnarok, but he started with his group with David Gordon Green, who's doing the new Halloween. Did tons of movies. They made an indie called George Washington, and through that, they had to really fight for him to let him start edi- editing the studio movies they were doing, that that group of filmmakers. So, yeah, you never know how you're going to get in, but you're not going to get anywhere if you don't do it. And the thing I like about this story is he, they were just working with what they had, they made their film, and they got it in the festivals. And now here they are, and Sven's, Sven's frustrated at them. <laughs> not that frustrated. So. <laughs> but I think what's, <laughs> I what's also interesting and should not be overlooked is the fact that there's a guy who then worked for YouTube or basically used YouTube to uh, advance his filmmaking craft. And by just doing a lot of little shorts, a lot of little videos, he immediately like was fast-tracking his craftsmanship and understood what's working really, really fast. How do you connect with an audience? So by the time that he did his first feature, he already had, had a leg up on connecting with the audience you know, in a way that maybe sometimes in a traditional way, a filmmaker needs like three to ten films to get there. Yeah, yeah, just that that experience connecting in a, in maybe a different way than a theatrical experience, but you know, how many people are going to see that movie in theaters? Yeah, tell a story and actually get a response from an audience like they want to see the story. They responded to it. They engage with it. Yeah, it's it's an exciting time for me for filmmakers because YouTube it's still fairly new what is it around 10 years old would you say Sven maybe 2005 I think so a little over 10 years and people are like oh these YouTube filmmakers you know they would like trash talk them it's like yeah of course they suck because they're new at filmmaking but what I always said is it was similar to when the movie camera was invented and all those short films were being made and all you know Griffith was making 450 movies and it was just much easier to make a quick little short film than the technology required now to make a film and people making as much content as they are I still feel like we may see the greatest filmmakers of all time better than anything we've ever seen just through the experience that people can have now making stuff so that's something very exciting or there is something that's inherently detrimental about youtube and everyone is going to be awful and movies will never be as good as the shining again i don't know what i really (laughs) think is important is this feedback loop i remember when i went to film school make a short it was a six months process and only after that you would really know where you're at with a film because that's when you find an audience in a festival or whatever so yeah. it takes you six months to go through the process. And nowadays, you can do this whole process in a week. And then you do it again and again and again. So within six months, you could have repeated that cycle uh, many times over so that by the time you do do a big project, you already have a much better gauge on your craft and how to connect to an audience. Take your phone out of your pocket. Start recording. You'll have an audience response very quickly. It's crazy. Super important, that last step, getting it out there, finding an audience. Now, speaking of audiences, Sven, should, do you want to get into the movie <laughs> that yeah. our audience members yes. recommended? So Clara recommended a scene for us, and that's awesome because now we can take this podcast to a new level where we really like share the movies that we want to talk about. And when I looked at this scene, I hadn't seen the film before. 
I was so excited because I was immediately engaged and I wanted to find out more about this film. And I did. I watched the entire film yesterday. I did some research and it just opened up my world, my knowledge of film tremendously. That's really something great we can achieve with this podcast is every week to offer up a film that you might have not seen, give you a reason to check it out. So thank you yeah. so much to Clara for opening up the door and hopefully many more people will follow along. I had seen it and I'm very curious what your take on this scene was, Sven, having not seen it because it's such a specific scene. I thought I saw a filmmaker who was inspired by Quentin Tarantino, which is kind of ironic <laughs> because right. uh, Quentin Tarantino is inspired by Asian cinema. And this seems to be like a second-generation right. filmmaker who sort of turned it around again. Even though this is not an action film or anything like it, it's kind of a melodrama, I still felt like, oh, this the colors and the way the camera is used and the way that people are talking, this, this, this feels so like Pulp Fiction to me or Reservoir Dogs. Did you, did you have that experience? I, no, I didn't because I'd seen the movie and I knew... <clears throat> that that aspect of his influences but i i totally get it i think that's cool i was just curious what you thought was going on in the scene well the great thing is you didn't really need any context to get the scene and this is a pivotal right. scene in the film which i realized after the fact it's like these two characters sitting in a restaurant and this conversation starts one way and you think it's kind of trivial what they're talking about and it suddenly turns and you realize that the relationship between these two people is completely different than what i thought it would be at the beginning i thought those were two lovers which they're kind of not at this stage and the right. sto story right. is really about the other person that we don't see so each one has either a husband or a wife having an affair with each other having an affair with each other and we learn in this scene that that's what's going on and because of that these two neighbors are connecting it's a beautiful setup to turn the story in this film and the actors are tony lung maggie chung and the film is in the mood for love came out in 2000 and it's probably Wong Kar Wai's most celebrated film. Right. The film emerged from a highly complicated production history that lasted two years. It had several div different titles and there were other films floating around that he wanted to make and eventually it evolved into this romantic melodrama which is set in 1960s Hong Kong and it sort of reflects his own background by focusing on Shanghainese immigrants in the early 60s a lot of Chinese were fleeing to Hong Kong during that cultural revolution. They sort of have a Mandarin background and Hong Kong is more Cantonese. So they're, they're kind of strangers in the city. And these two happen to become neighbors. So they were sort of crossing paths all the time and realizing, oh, we're like these two lonely souls in the city. And they started to connect. Do you want to watch the scene? Yes, let's do it. And the way we do it is we'll find a YouTube clip, and Clara did that, and we'll include the link in the video description here. If you want to find the link, just go on Patreon, This Guy Edits, and search for the podcast, and it'll be there. All right, so this is what we're doing, and we're going to play. Who's going to talk us through it? Um, I think you probably should. Again? Jeez. Okay, here we go. In three, two... Okay, we are 
in a restaurant. We're seeing some cigarette smoke. Yeah, and it's cool because we establish it with this insert shot, which is a cool technique also of setting the mood just with this nice insert and seeing the smoke waft into it. Yeah, the camera is like far off over the shoulder. We're seeing just the head sticking out from the booth. Yeah, we're seeing it in the way you would in the restaurant, seeing this intimate conversation, and then we get brought into it. Right. And I find it interesting that we're basically cutting between profile shots the whole time through. Mm-hmm. As the, and the insert details are so nice in this, this whole movie. Right. He starts off with, can you get me a bag for my wife? Right. And she says, well, wouldn't that be weird if she has the same bag that I do? Right. And then we further reveal that that bag is actually a present from her husband that he brought from a business trip. Right. And there. And she knows about the affair, right? She does. And he doesn't. Um, and that sort of breaks up that conversation. He's like, okay, never mind then. I don't need that bag. Right. And this is good. Now she wants to ask him something. This is the first time that the camera like pans, whip pans between them right. and this profile shot that sort of was very disconnecting now there's a connection between them in a way yeah and we also know it's telling us that this is going to become about something more <laughs> they both got their ties the same way which is yeah like he or he got his tie the same way she got her bag yeah so she turned the conversation <laughs> towards the tie and realized oh this is a tie that his wife bought him, and her husband wears basically the same tie. Right. So same bag, same ties, they're giving each other presents, and this is where it dawns on him, oh. Yeah, so it's a very suggestive way that she's breaking this information to him, which is really cool too, that the, the way that it's being filmed and edited together really lends to the gentle suggestive nature of it yeah and then that great shot where we pan showing his real like that's a big turning point for him and the realization yeah we should get back to that cool in a second there's an inside of smoke and this is where i sort of started to have this feeling boom um that this is this feels like a tarantino movie to me that last whip pan comes from out of nowhere from the side from the other booth to him right to really emphasize the fact that he has a moment of realization and then just cutting to the smoke of a cigarette yeah it's it's like that hitting him but it's funny the difference i would say interestingly enough is even watching this when when the clip was suggested to us i didn't notice it it just fit in in a weird way. Even when I first saw the film, even rewatching it recently, that that didn't jump out to me. It just seemed to make sense. Whereas when it's in a Tarantino movie, you walk out of the movie remembering that that whip pan. Yeah. At least that's me. Something about this kind of just—it's an extreme move, but it's it just fits into the emotion and feeling of the moment in a way that you need as an audience member to know. Ooh, that just hit him. And that just there's something beautiful about that type of camera move too that just really signifies just getting hit 
in the head with this information and realizing it in your world kind of turning and breaking and, and stopping because they're playing it so subdued and repressed. It's very cool to, to film it that way. Yeah. And this web pan is at 240. Up to this point, I almost felt like this is a very conventionally covered scene. And then I noticed that yeah. this is all a plan. Like this, this is by design, how the scene is covered and how we're cutting here to really build up to that moment. And then watching the movie, I realized this is like a third into the film, maybe a little less. This is really yeah. where these two characters that up to this point sort of ran into each other in the hallway and all these times where they talk to each other, but they never really figured out what it is that connects the two of them. When I read, the director seems to be highly improvising, doesn't really sure. work with the script, I feel like he really found this by doing a lot of takes and playing around with it, making it as simple as possible for this to be so fu so powerful. And I, I feel like when you're not working with the script with stuff like this, um, with the movie like this, it's I, he. there's a good chance that either he knew or he subconsciously knew that this movie was going to fall around, this scene was going to fall around that 15-minute mark mm -hmm. in this movie because this scene is the movie this is everything it's about is the two people whose spouses are having affairs with each other. This is the moment they both realize that this was never going to happen at the end. It was never going to happen at the very beginning. They had to be set up. And then however the scene plays out, that's, that's fine. And you know, there's improvisation around that where it goes from here, but this seemed kind of like an inherent thing. And then the other thing I'll point out is just about that, that pan is the way it's being done is it's almost being done in a way that he's now catching up with the audience. Cause we start out as voyeurs watching this scene from a distance, right? We're watching it as if we're in the cafe. And then that shot kind of pulls from another booth. Like we're in that other booth as another guest at the diner and he's being caught up with us. Like, all right, <laughs> now you get it, man. No more hiding your head. Yep. This is what's going on. And I'm glad that I then watched the film as well because I realized that this scene is only the beginning of a sequence of three scenes, I believe, in that booth. After this, we'll cut to them walking in the streets. Mm -hmm. And then we cut back to the booth, them walking in the streets, cut back to the booth. And you could almost feel like it's all the same moment. The only giveaway is that she's wearing different dresses throughout this so then you'll you have to assume that these are different dates yeah and each time when we cut back to the booth the coverage becomes more elaborate there's one moment actually where we're crossing the line at some point and the camera goes on the other side of the booth where the wall is that moment we don't have it here but that moment signifies another turning point in their relationship yeah, it's very well done, and it's in, and it's the other thing too is for people watching this <clears throat> that are starting out doing stuff and like, oh, I don't know, you know, Wong Kar Wai, like a lot of filmmakers, does not need an ironed out script, and sometimes an ironed out script is just something that's really a lot more helpful in terms of getting financing and people knowing what's going on so you can move you know your company around but these are really kind of profound thematic themes being discovered in the filmmaking and specifically the editing that are being figured out just by doing it just by getting footage kind of having some idea what the conflict is in the scene where the story is generally going what the issue is that needs to be resolved and you know through that you can discover all this stuff by doing it but there's no reason to wait you know to hold off until you feel like things are perfect this stuff is being discovered in the moment it's being discovered in the editing room so 
take a little comfort in that or encouragement that you'll figure it out. It doesn't make it any less valuable. Yeah, this a, kind of as a statement. This uh, this kind of connects also to uh, Will and Nick, the two editors from Searching. They said they always were cutting this stuff as fast as they could. Like they were always, it felt like they were breaking it as they were making it, and that created this really strong narrative flow of the story that it felt very very present when you're making a film or when you're editing it. And in the moment you're discovering these things, that's often what then bec become exciting events in the film, exciting moments. That's like the real power of film. You know, like Scorsese's films, the scripts are very rarely an accurate representation of the final film because he understands that discovery process. And, and you know, film, you don't know what's going to happen on set. You don't know what's going to happen in rehearsal. You don't know what's going to happen in the editing. You can discover something totally new. So give yourself those opportunities to do that and, and embrace the, the fun process of filmmaking. Um, I also would like to add that the film, at the beginning at least, feels like fractions of moments. There's a lot of fades to blacks between like just these glimpses of them passing on a hallway having a brief conversation and then we move on and that all culminates to the scene right here and then the story turns in a way that it becomes more intimate the conversations become longer also very interesting is the use of music in the film there's no music well there is music here which is diegetic it feels like but these chapters in the film are often broken up with a a beautiful piece of music that's sort of the same theme throughout and that theme keeps repeating itself but plays longer and longer as their relationship deepens so very well structured film even though it's it feels like it it has very little plot in it surprisingly the character development is just very very beautiful i was just gonna gonna say tell people where 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 it's playing it's on filmstruck yeah it's it's very worth seeking out it's really just a wonderful film it's it's a resplendent film to view and we're curious what your thoughts are on it also as a viewer because there's so much interpretation that can go into a film like this so we're excited for the uh, conversation on patreon about this one and check out Wong Kar-wai's other work I mean it's all great it's all valuable Chunking Express is a great film Totally, yeah. Uh, no, I'm like, I've met a new filmmaker now that I haven't known, and I'm excited to see some of his other films. Speaking of the conversation on Patreon, we want to thank Dennis again for another amazing video uh, with our the Prince of Tides episode we did last week. He did another, another really great thing with the screen grab that, I mean, again, it's better than, <laughs> it's better than the movie. It's better than the movie Prince of Tides. <laughs> what I really loved is that when we were talking about the script versus the editing, he actually found... Uh, a page of the script when I was talking about it, I, I remember that the flashbacks were written into the script there's now visual proof that they are actually right there and the way that they are written nice. into the script so you can read up on that and they play or they're written like scenes in there and just and I don't no matter what you do it's valuable to read the real script for a film if you get the chance put that challenge for yourself like Find the actual script, not the BS thing that they published after the movie and put in borders or something like that. It's just a transcript. Find the real script that the filmmakers worked from because then you can really see the stuff we're talking about with the movie like this, how much discovery can happen, not only in performance and on set and through script changes as you go, but also things that can be discovered in editing. 
that are really cool. It empowers you to realize that it is a process and that's what you have to love. It's not about coughing out this perfect formed gem, which is impossible. Exactly. I bought the script for Prince of Tides. It's one of those movies where I'm like, okay, I really love this. I'm going to get the script to just study it. And it's, it's kind of helpful. I like it. I like doing that. Yeah, I would love to find anything that Wong Kar Wai's documents he approaches his films with. Yeah. I knew, it's funny because I knew Jude Law when he was filming a movie with him. And I don't know, I should have asked, but it sounded like, yeah, he just has sunglasses on and a suit and, <laughs> and smoking a cigarette. Just pointing. Um, I'm not going to put that in. Um, Good stuff. Oh, Very excited about this film. Please suggest other films. I want to broaden my horizon. We all do. And see this podcast as a spark of inspiration where you can maybe not just watch another Netflix show, binge watch it, but take that moment and discover a new film, a new artist, and see how things are done in the non-conventional way and still connect with an audience. And also suggest the podcast to a friend. We're steadily growing. That's really fun to see. So let friends know that might be into it. Friends that might have movies that <laughs> they want us to check out and talk about. And subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can find us. And uh, as Sven always says, happy editing. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, I felt like with this I one, I, I could <laughs> also connect on it because I actually traveled to China. And I know the difference oh, nice. between Shanghai and Hong Kong and uh, Cantonese and Mandarin Chinese. They really have a different way of life and how they see life, how they approach. Cantonese are very chill, very relaxed. Shanghainese or Mandarin tend to be very uptight, at least like that's the stereotype. Mm -hmm. They're living a much faster life. And to see sort of this story, like it almost felt to me like the story was like a Mad Men episode. Right. I know Mad Men came after this. So maybe what's his name? Matt Weiner. Is that his name? He was yeah. inspired by this potentially. Yeah. The opulence and repression. It's cool to see this world that we know very little about, but still feel connected. And just talking. Yeah, and out that's of my the other ass. fun thing too, is it but it could be cool too, where you're seeing two different, totally culturally different people looking at a similar era, because they both take place at the same time, and how the result is something very similar just because the artists are being true to that in a specific way is cool too. Yeah. If they'd never heard of each other, or if Wiener'd never heard of this somehow. Yeah. <clears throat> um I hope you're still recording, so I'm putting that at the end. Yeah, yeah. I'm recording this all this stuff. Just take out the talking out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I will.